All right, well, if you have a Bible, if you would turn to Mark 8, finish up chapter 8 tonight. And we'll start reading in verse 27. The title of the message is The Way to Save Your Life. That's what we're going to look at. So beginning in verse 27 of Mark chapter 8, it reads, And Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Whom do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But some say Elias, and others one of the prophets. And he said unto them, But whom do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said unto him, You are the Christ. And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected of the elders, and of the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospel's, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." And Lord, I just ask once again, as we always do, we just ask, Lord, that you'll open our hearts, our minds, our understanding to hear your voice, to hear the Holy Spirit speak to us, to make changes in our lives, uh, to cause us to commit ourselves afresh to you. And we thank you that you'll do that for us in Jesus' name. So at this point in the Gospel of Mark, we've reached the end of chapter 8 is what we're going to be at tonight. And it's the halfway point of Mark in many ways. Because first of all, if you know, Mark has how many chapters in it? 16. So we're halfway through it at chapter 8. That's the first place. The other thing is, there's a, a major change that takes place in the pace of this gospel at this point. So up to this point through these first eight chapters, Mark uses the word immediately. Immediately. Straightway is the other way the word's translated. 46 times he's used it through these eight chapters. And what he's doing with that is he is just keeping the pace of this gospel going. It's a fast-moving gospel. From one miracle to another, from one event to another, immediately, straightway, immediately. But from here on out, things slow down. And that same word is only used nine times more in the remaining eight chapters. Not used hardly at all. Things slow down. And the other thing is, the first half of this gospel is designed to show the Messiah Jesus in his power and with his authority. And the second half, the emphasis is more on his humiliation and his suffering. And just to give you a few examples, in the next chapter, Jesus takes a little child, we all know that story, puts him on his lap, and he says, this is what you guys need to become. This is what I've been, and this is what you need to become, like little children, have that kind of humility. And when he comes riding into Jerusalem, so he doesn't come with the power and authority they would have assumed the Messiah did riding a white stallion. No, what does he come? He comes on the foal of an ass riding a little donkey. 
is the way the king of glory comes riding into Jerusalem. And when Mark gives the Lord's agony that he has in the garden, so it's not this picture of this conquering hero, like we're saying, the second half, it's showing his humiliation and his suffering. And it says of the Lord Jesus that he began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy and said unto them, Peter, James, and John, my soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. We're saying it shows his humility, his weakness, his dependency as a man. And it says angels have to come and strengthen him then. And then the crucifixion itself displays the weakness of Christ. And Paul says that in 2 Corinthians 13. He says, for indeed he was crucified because of weakness. And the only way he's weak, though, is because of his humanity and his willingness to suffer on our behalf. It wasn't a lack of power. He said, I could say one word and I could put a stop to this right now. So it's showing his humility and weakness, but it's a willing humility and weakness because it goes on to say in that verse, for indeed he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. (laughs) And that's our Lord. So there's three things we're going to get established here tonight at this point in the gospel. And the first one is that gets established here is who is Jesus, the identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus? And the second thing is the purpose of Jesus. What has God sent him to do? And the third thing we're going to look at is the way to follow Jesus. The terms of discipleship or the way to save your life is another way we can say that, which is the title of the message. So those are the three points we're going to look at tonight. The identity of Jesus, the purpose of Jesus, and the way to follow Jesus. Those are going to be our three points. So first of all, I want to look at the identity of Jesus. And that starts out here in verse 27. So Jesus takes his disciples from the Sea of Galilee. He takes them up to the area, it says, of Caesarea Philippi. Well, that's 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It's as far north as he could have taken them away from Jerusalem and still been in Israel. He's got them up there because he's wanting to teach them. He's wanting to have a break from the crowds and a little bit of time to teach them, even though there are some crowds around. And as he is a disciples, it says, as they're walking on the way, he asked them a question. Who do men, what are you hearing out there? Who do men say that I am? And the response they give him is basically a positive response, isn't it? So look there in verse 28, and they answered and said, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. So here the people, they're saying, we know he's no ordinary man. I mean, the miracles that he's doing, the anointing, his teaching, you know, he may be this returning prophet. They were expecting Elijah to come back. They knew he had never died. They knew he had been taken away in a chariot, and they're saying, this may be him. We don't know. Or one of the other prophets has come back. That was the popular opinion of him. And there's always a popular opinion of Jesus, isn't there? I mean, I know a lot of people, they're not Christians. They have a very, my dad's one, he's got a very good opinion of Jesus. He'll quote him at times and misquote him at times, but he doesn't say he was a bad man or whatever, but that's the popular opinion. But then Jesus takes that question, who do men say that I am, and turns it directly on his disciples. Verse 29, and he says unto them, but whom say ye that I am? And the Greek, when you read the Greek, it gives a little bit more emphasis on you because you is put at the front of the sentence and it would be literally, it would have been read like this. He would have said, I hear what you're saying about these other people, but you, 
You. Who do you say that I am? That's what it says in the Greek. It's moved all the way to the front of the sentence. The NIV translation, I think, is good at this point. It says, the way they have this translated is, but what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Because what's he asking them to do? And he's saying, you're hearing everybody around you. But I want you to look deep inside yourself, and I want you to tell me, who am I to you? What do I mean to you? That's the question he's asking them. I know what the crowds are saying, but what's he really saying too? Are you willing to go against the crowds? What's in your heart? Here's the thing, because true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is going to have to be able to do what? It's going to have to be able to go against popular opinion, even when that opinion of him is positive, right? So a lot will say Jesus is a great teacher. They'll acknowledge his miracles. The Muslims do that. They acknowledge his miracles, right? People will call him Lord in a sinner's prayer, but is that enough? Because here's the thing, at some point, this man wrote, at some point, the colleagues of Jesus and everyone, that's you and me, who have heard his name must look deep within Jesus and deep within themselves and risk a decision. Risk a decision at some point in your life. That's what's going to happen. And that's what he's asking them here. You know, Greg and I, we had this guy, this buddy of ours in high school, we were good friends with him and we both liked him. And so... Like a lot of people, word got out about Greg and I being saved, and he knew about that. And Greg used to have a window washing business, and he told me one day he ran across a guy's name, Steve. Ran across Steve when he's washing windows, and they get to talking. And if I remember this right, Greg basically told him, you know, to be a true Christian, Steve, you know, you're going to have to give your whole life and heart to Jesus. Am I right? Yeah, I thought that's the way it went. So <laughs> you'd have to know this guy. He was a bit of a character. A bit of a character. Big old strong guy, right? And he, he liked to call everybody, he liked food. So everybody had nicknames that had to do with food, including Greg, including me. But Greg said that to him, and Greg, I remember Greg telling me he lifted up his T-shirt and scratched his belly, which he would do a lot of times, and he goes, well, he said, Mealy, I hear what you're saying. Called Greg Mealy. That was his food thing, Greg Mealy. He said, I'm not against you. He said, but I got this philosophy. I got this philosophy I use. He goes, I never am going to put all of my eggs in one basket. That was his philosophy of life. So he's like, I'm just going to hold on to a little bit of everything just in case. That's the way he was. But Jesus is asking all of us here, just like he asked his disciples, whom do you say that I am? He's asking that each of us personally that. What do you think? Am I a basket that you could put all of your eggs into? Is that how you look at me? Am I really God in the flesh? Because the disciples up to this point, they've been struggling with that. In chapter 4, when he stilled that storm, when he was in the boat with them and stilled that storm at sea, they're asking themselves, they don't know. They're questioners saying, what manner of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Because they weren't sure at that moment. And he's not asking them that question then. But all of these works that they've seen of the Lord Jesus Christ through our eight chapters have had a cumulative effect up to this point. They've seen him silence the sea. They've seen him silence demons. He's healed every illness that's come his way, every deformity, every limb that wasn't formed right. He's caused it to be the way it should be. He's raised the dead and he has twice fed the crowds with mere scraps. Huge crowds he fed. And God used all of that to open their hearts and open their understanding. And Peter exclaims when he asked him that, who do you say that I am? Well, he'd had a revelation. And he says, you are the Christ. 
You are the Messiah. That's all it says here in John. In Matthew's account, he adds, you are the Christ, and he adds, the Son of the living God. God had brought him to that point, gave him that revelation, and at that point, they are savingly embracing the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. For those of you in here that aren't saved, and even for us that are saved, I mean, it's not like that question's only asked one time, whom do you say that I am? But do you know that all of the works that had happened that they had seen up to this point, God was able to use to open their eyes to see this is who he is. And so do you understand when these gospels are written, they're not written for our intellectual satisfaction, for our curiosity. They're written to bring us to that exact same point. Because faith comes not by seeing the Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh, does it? How does faith come to us? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So if you, over in John, you don't have to turn there, but let me quote John 20. That's what John basically said. Listen to what he said, John 20, 31. And at the very end of John's gospels where he says, this is the purpose I've written this gospel to you. John 20, 31, he said, and many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But listen to what John says. He says, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. So he's saying these things are written. John said everything I've written in this book is to bring us, as we read this, to the exact same place the disciples and Peter came to. Thou art the Christ. So that we can believe he is the Christ, the son of the living God, the Messiah. And that's what happens. You know, you see throughout your life, this is the way it went for me. As you read the word, as you hear the word, as you see the results, all of that, like with them, has a cumulative effect on people. Now, some people can believe the gospel the first time they hear it, but that's the rare person, right? He brings people, he brings his sheep to that point of decision. Because I heard preaching, I grew up in a Catholic, as a Catholic, but I heard enough verses of scripture. I hear enough on the radio. I'd hear people that would street preach on the campus I went to. And I would see lives, the other thing that would speak to me, I'd see the, the effects of that gospel on people. I'd see people with clean countenances. I'd see people with true joy and peace that I thought, I don't know anybody that I go to this Catholic high school with. I don't know anybody like that. But yet I'm seeing other people that are that way. There's something to this. And God uses all of that, like he did with his disciples. And he brings you to that point of decision. Right? Because Saul of Tarsus, hey, that bright light came at a certain point in his life, didn't it? The Lord spoke to him and he says, listen, Saul, it is hard for you to kick against the pricks. He'd been doing it for a while. His conscience is being pricked. He realizes he's seeing Stephen. He was there. He's seeing Stephen look up. His countenance shone like an angel's. And I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He witnessed that. And that he's praying for those that have, have killed him. It's convicting Saul. So at the right time, that bright light shines on him. And that question comes. That's the right time. He knows the right time to bring us to that point of crisis. So he didn't ask him this question, did he? The Lord didn't ask him after the first miracle that they saw. Like I said, most people, they've done statistics on this. And most people do not become Christians the first time they hear the gospel. It's generally 11 to 18 times or more. 
People hear the gospel, they meet Christians, and it, God brings them to that point. He draws them with that cords of love, is what it talks about in, I believe it's Hosea 4. Draws them with cords of love. And that's what he did to me. I know everyone has their own testimony, but that's the way it was. At the age of 21, all of these times, all these meetings, all of these meetings with the guy sticking his finger up under my nose one night when I wasn't in great shape telling me if you died tonight, you'd go to hell. And I'm like, buddy, just get out of my face and leave me alone. But in here, God stuck an arrow in my heart. Never could get away from that. I go into prison now and guy's like, well, what's your reason for coming in there? And I'll tell him that's why. Because some guy I've never seen before and never saw after had the courage to come up to me, another young man, and tell me the truth. I said, I'm just passing it along. And that's what happened. But God, he brought me to that point at age 21. I'm sitting at my desk. And I'm asking him, I can hear him, what do you think? Who do you think I am? I hear him speaking to me. Do you think I am worthy to be followed at all costs? Are you willing to follow me even if it means the opinion of others may not be high you anymore? They may not like you. Your friends may leave you. Who do you say that I am, John? You ever hear that? Did you ever hear God speak to your heart like that? Are you willing to risk all and follow me? And listen, the fact he brings us to that place, brings all that, all that conviction, works on us by his Holy Spirit, brings us to that point to where we're able to make that commitment. That is all God's grace. But that's the way he works, and that's what I'm saying here. So is he asking you that? Maybe you're a young person or an old person in here that just really knows you've never, you've just never given your heart to him. Or all of us. Like I said, I don't think the Lord asks us that question. He doesn't me. He asks me that a lot of times. What do I mean to you? How committed really are you? Doesn't he speak to you like that? I think he does that a lot of times. Ask us, am I really your healer? Whom do you say that I am? Will I really forgive you if you confess your sins? Am I the one that rose from the dead, that can pour out my spirit on you, enable you to speak in new languages, just like I did on the day of Pentecost? Who do you say that I am? Look in your heart, just like I asked them to do. Who am I to you? So Peter made the right confession here, didn't he? But he only had his eyes. Remember we talked about the blind man is a type of what's happening to the disciples. So Peter had his eyes touched enough that he could see Men as trees walking, right? He had a revelation. And I'm saying it was no small revelation for him to be able to see you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. That was huge. It really was. Jesus said, you are blessed. Blessed are you because my father has revealed that to you, Peter. That doesn't happen to very many people. Hasn't happened to very many people at all. And he goes on to say, that confession that you're making, what you've had your eyes open to see, who I am, that I am the Messiah, the anointed one, that is a, such a great revelation. It will be the foundation of the church from here on out. No small thing. But guess what? <laughs> he needed a second touch. He was totally blind and now he can see. But he needs more than that, doesn't he? And that's what 
the next part, the next point, point number two is all about is he needed to be able to see what this Messiah was all about. What is the purpose of the Messiah coming to earth? What did God send him to do? And look in verse 30. So after Peter makes that great confession, thou art the Christ, it's kind of funny. Jesus charges them that they should tell no man of him. And that's the same word for rebuke. He sternly warns them and Peter, I don't want you telling anybody this. Now that seems kind of funny. You'd think, man, you'd think they would just want to get the word out, wouldn't you? Let everybody know, hey, the Messiah's here. But here's the problem. Peter had a misunderstanding of what the Messiah was going to be like. Jesus didn't want him getting the crowds all riled up and thinking, here, we've got our deliverer that's going to get us you know, rid of our oppressors from Rome. Nah, he says, don't tell anybody because I have some teaching that I have to do here. And that's what he does beginning in verse 31. And it says, in verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must. And that word must there means it is necessary. Necessary for every person on this earth if they want to have a hope of salvation. He says, he must suffer many things, be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again, and it says, and he spake that saying openly. Told them openly. That means he spoke plainly. So he's not talking to them in parables about his death and suffering that's coming up. It says he told them plainly, I'm going to suffer, be rejected, and killed, and rise again in three days. The problem was, it wasn't what Peter wanted to hear. He didn't want to hear that. In fact, he couldn't just, he couldn't see it. He's still blind in that sense. So <laughs> this is true. They did this experiment back a few years back where these patients were given stereopticons. It's called stereopticons. And what it is, they had this thing they would put over their eyes, these glasses that allowed these people doing this experiment to flash two different pictures at the same time. They could flash one picture in each different eye. And so in one eye, what they would do is they flashed a picture of a baseball player. And in the other eye, they flashed a bullfighter. So they're seeing this at the same time. So the Mexicans that they did that to, and they asked them what they saw, they said, we saw a bullfighter. The people from North America, when they flashed those two images at the same time, guess what they saw? A ball player because that's what they're trained to recognize, accustomed to seeing and knowing. And that is what happened to Peter. Because Peter, in his mind, when he hears Christ, Messiah, the Anointed One, he has images in his mind of power, armies, worldly ambition, prestige. And Jesus is flashing this other picture in front of him. He says, no, no, it's not going to be that. It's going to be suffering, rejection, and death. And Peter can't see it. He doesn't want to see it. It gets him upset. He can't handle it. And look what happens here. It says, verse 32, spoke that saying openly. And when he says it, it says, Peter took him. He physically took the Lord by the arm. Can you imagine that? He takes him away. And Peter, it says, he rebukes him. No, Lord, you, that's not going not gonna to happen. Takes him away, and it says that Peter rebukes him right there. So here's the thing. The word for rebuke is what Jesus would say against evil spirits. And Peter's like, no, what you're saying doesn't sound right to me. It sounds evil. It doesn't sound like the way it ought to be. Totally contrary to what I've been raised to think. Because never in Israel was it ever heard that the Messiah would suffer. They never put those, things, those two things together. 
And it sounds like a foreign gospel to him. Man, I've been in prison <laughs> and gone cell to cell, and I've talked to people about you need to repent. You're a sinner. You need to repent. That's the only way you're going to be right with God. Unless you repent, you'll perish. And I've had guys tell me, I, that sounds like a foreign gospel. I've never heard that. Because in their mind, all they got to do is say this prayer, and heaven, they got their ticket. No one's ever bothered telling them that. And that's kind of what we have here. Jesus is saying, no, the Messiah's got to suffer. And Peter's like, I don't receive that. I don't want to hear that. That's a foreign gospel to me. Never heard about that. And it's a typical Jewish problem because what's he done? He's put a stumbling block in front of him. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. So Peter is the first one to come across this stumbling block. And he felt like he had to straighten Jesus out. But here's the thing, just the opposite happened. Jesus is still in control of this situation. He's still in control of Peter. So he turns around, it says, and he looks at the other disciples. Because he's including everybody in here. And then it says he rebukes Peter. So we got a lot of rebuking going on here. Three times that word's used right in these first few verses here, these verses that we've just read. And Jesus tells him, hey, Peter, here's your problem. You've got a wrong spirit that's influencing you now, Peter. It's the devil. Because he tells him here in verse 33, he says, get thee behind me, Satan, for you savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. And that savorous not means you're not setting your mind. That's what it means, not savorous like food that's savory. He's saying, you're not setting your mind on the things that are of God, Peter, but things that are man's. And so he's saying the concept, God's idea of the Messiah, the way the Messiah is actually going to be manifested is not what your idea is. And here's the problem. Peter just can't see in his mind anybody that can perform these miracles that Jesus has done. Nobody, how's anybody ever going to cause you to suffer? Why do you have to yield to a single person? Why wouldn't you do what we've heard you're going to come to do? Get the armies up and free us from our oppressors. Lord, I'm, I'm chained to you. I'm on your wagon. And we're going to have fame and glory. It's not what he wanted to hear. That's the things of man. And I'm saying, just like he had to lay his hands on that blind man's eyes twice, the Lord had to lay his hands, so to speak, on his disciples' eyes three times in the next three chapters to open their eyes to what's going on, the purpose of the Messiah and how it relates to their life. This is one of them right here in chapter 831. He tells them, I'm going to have to suffer, be rejected, and die. And Peter rebukes him. And he's like, wait a minute. No, you're going to have to do the same thing. We'll get to that here in a minute. And then over in chapter 9, look over in chapter 9, verses 30 and 31. It says right there, and they departed thence and passed through Galilee, and he would not that any man should know it, for he taught his disciples and said unto them the same thing. Here he is a chapter later, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, they shall kill him, and after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. And look what it says in verse 32, they don't get it, but they understood not that saying, and they're afraid to ask him. But because of that, because they don't understand about the suffering and the humiliation, you know what comes after that? They don't understand. They're arguing over who's going to be the greatest. And he's saying, wait a minute, you're still not getting it. You're still not seeing it because it's not glory. I'm trying to tell you, I'm not headed for glory right now. That comes later. It's humiliation. 
And he says, look at here, calls a little child over to him, puts him on his lap. He says, listen, gentlemen, this is what you need to become. Like this little child, like this humble little child, that child's not seeking any glory or fame or power at that point in his life. And the last place, the third place, we said three chapters. Look over in chapter 10, verses 33 to 34. It says right there, he says it again. Tells them what things are going to happen to him at the end of verse 32. In verse 33, he says, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priest, unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles, and they shall mock him, and scourge him, shall spit upon him, and kill him. And the third day he shall rise again. And you know what the next thing we read? <laughs> James and John, they want to come and they want to know where, how can we sit on your right hand? They're still worried about that power. And he's like, no, no, no. I'm going to tell you what, you need to be servants. That's what I'm trying to show you. Not kings, not reigning, not in power. He says, the first are going to be last. And you need to be servant of all if you want to be great in my kingdom. <laughs> so that's the thing. We have to ask ourselves. So their mindset of following Jesus meant a life of ease and comfort and pleasure. That's what they're looking at. And that's where he's saying, you're not thinking the things of God. That's not what God has called us to in discipleship. I'm saying, is that the way we look at our Christianity? Is that the way we want it to be? So when you have problems that come your way, do you think of what you're going to do with them in terms of flesh and blood? Or do you look to God's word to give you the answer on this is what you should do? Right? I mean, how many times has that happened where you, somebody does something and you, Brother Hamilton used to talk about this all the time. Give me some scriptures on what you're doing. Do you really think what you're doing is scriptural? And we shouldn't be to where we're saying, I don't know. Should we? Because that's where we may be doing the things of men, and a lot of times people are. And so our business should be, we want to find out what God wants us to do so we're thinking about his thoughts. So we face problems and situations. Everybody does every day. And how do we think about them? Spiritually, or are we thinking about them worldly? And that's why Jesus calls the crowd over to him. He says, I want you disciples in your crowd, I want to teach you something here. I want to teach you what it means to follow me as the Messiah. Here's what has to happen if you want to follow in my steps. And that brings us to the third point. As he talks to them about the way to follow him. Terms of discipleships, or I would say the way to save your life. Because we all need to hear, all of us need to hear this and think about it. There is no difference between the terms of the disciples, discipleship, meeting those terms, and not perishing in hell. No difference. So he sets down the terms in verse 34. Back in Mark 7, verse 34, he sets down the terms there. Whoever will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And he spends the rest of the time telling us that that is the only way we're going to make it into heaven. The terms are the same as the way you'll make it into heaven. So here, the terms and conditions that he sets down there in verse 34, they're not like the terms for getting a new visa card. Because those terms and conditions are changing all the time, aren't they? They do on mine. But the Lord's terms have never changed, and they never will change. They'll always be the same. 
So you know when you go to get something online, how many times does this happen to you? You're online, you go to get something, and that box come up at the bottom. It says, a little blank box, do you agree to these terms and conditions? And you try to move on without checking that box, it doesn't let you go anywhere. So you have to say, I agree to these terms and conditions, whether they're new or not. And if you're somebody that reads all eight pages of them, I'd like to talk to you. <laughs> I just assume that must be, you know, <laughs> safe and common. But until you check that box, you're not going any further. It's the exact same way in eternal life. Jesus says these are the terms and conditions. And if you don't meet them, if you don't agree to them, you will not have eternal life, but you'll perish, which means you'll end up in hell. And it is that serious. And that's why Jesus says the same thing in Luke 14. If anyone will come to me, and he will not hate father, mother, sister, brother, yea, in his own life also, he says it's a word of impossibility. He cannot be my disciple. In other words, you can't make it into heaven. Only disciples make it into heaven. Discipleship, following the Lord Jesus Christ, giving him everything, is not an option for anyone. We don't have half disciples, sort of disciples. We're either disciples or we're not. And that's why he goes on in Luke 14. And this is what he's saying here is, you've got to sit down and count the cost. Not only the cost of, nobody has it in us to make it. It's only going to be by God's grace and the help of his spirit, right? <laughs> but we've got to count the cost also of what if we decide not to follow him? I think that's what he's talking about in here in these verses. Have you ever considered the cost of not following him? And live in your own life. So the Lord's telling us here in these next few verses, verses 34 to 38, is that we got to walk the same path that he's on. The path of verse 31, where it says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must, it's necessary, suffer many things, be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests, scribes, and be killed. And after three days rise again. He's saying that is the way to be saved. Isn't that what he's saying there in verse 34? The path of rejection, suffering, and death. And I'd say, as one man said, that means more than just saying a prayer and making a few minor adjustments, right? Because if our lives don't look entirely different from the world's, there's a problem. Because I'm saying that is why verse 38 is in there. Because he says, if you're ashamed of me in this sinful and evil and adulterous generation, in other words, you're not going to look the same as them. And they're going to try to make you ashamed. Isn't that what he's saying? That's what he's telling us right there. That verse wouldn't make any sense. And so what's Jesus doing here? He's painting a picture of a procession because he's saying, I've got a cross. And this is the path I'm taking. I've got a cross that I've got to carry to Calvary. To die on your behalf. And he's saying, if you want to come after me, that's the path I'm taking. You're going to have to get your cross and you're going to have to pick it up and you're going to have to be willing to go through the same things I have. Maybe not literal death, but it, you need to be willing to. It may be brought to that. No one can say they aren't. You can't say God won't ask that of me. He very well may. You don't know. But you get this picture of, here's Jesus out in front, and back behind him are all the disciples, the true followers of him, from then all the way down through the centuries to us in this room. 
And if we want to make it into heaven, we had better be behind him, not in front of him. Peter's in front of him saying, no, Lord, I'm going to get you off this path. He says, get thee behind me. We need to be behind him with our crosses, following him, headed the same way he is, and not complain about suffering. (laughs) I didn't make these conditions here. He's the one that made them. But that's what he's saying. Jesus is the one that makes the requirements. You know, Peter didn't want to hear it, and most don't want to hear it today. Lord, far be it from me. I don't want to hear that. Rebuking him. And Jesus says, wait a minute, I'm rebuking you, Peter, because I'm not letting you go. But you need to understand, and you need to see that it's not this Christianity that's on TV. It's not all bells and whistles and fun and money and all that. 13 houses and 14 cars or whatever all else they tell you you'll get. And so we have to decide if we are going to be the whoever, the whosoever that he talks about there in verse 34. And so what are the conditions that he gives there? He says, whosoever will come after me. He says, let him deny himself. And so what does that mean to deny yourself? Does that mean to deny something to yourself? I don't know how many of you know, maybe Mr. Rudy knows. Do you know what today is? Today is Ash Wednesday. It is the first day of Lent. So those of you that weren't raised Catholic and don't know about Lent, you're blessed. <laughs> but I knew about it. You just get the little thumb on, little dark thumb, walk around all day looking like you, got, like you didn't take a good bath the night before. But Ash Wednesday is the day. The priest will do that to you, won't he? Put a little ash on there and you're in mourning for 40 days, I guess, whatever. period of 40 days is what Lent is. And there's other churches besides the Catholics that you know, do that now. But Catholics and others, what they do for 40 days is they say, we'll give up some kind of vice or pleasure for 40 days. And they think they're following Jesus and denying themselves. So they'll give up their favorite food, chocolate. Some of them will give up procrastination if they get around to it. Alcohol, (laughs) swearing, smoking, sweets, chips. And some, it says, they'll do positive acts of kindness. That's what they do for Lent. And so they think they're obeying the Lord doing this. It's just after 40 days, it's all off. <laughs> Get my cigarettes back out, my Paul Malls and beer, whatever all else, right? And that's not what Jesus is talking about. <laughs> that is not what he talks about. He's not saying you just got to deny certain things to yourself, but he's saying you have got to deny yourself, your selfish ambitions, your worldly pursuits, making your own life in this world. Not according to his word. That's what he's talking about. In other words, you have to deny the right to be the Lord of your life in every area. Right? You're no longer the center of the universe. Because I was. That's what it means when he says repent. A sinner is saying I do what I want to do. Within my own limits. I'm setting my own limits. And God's not controlling me. So we got nice sinners and really bad sinners, but they're sinners living selfish lives nonetheless. And repentance means you turn and walk the other way and you make Jesus the Lord of your life. Lord, like Paul said, it's the first sign of salvation for anybody. Lord, what will you have me to do? That's the way I'm walking from here on out. That's what the gospel is. It's 2 Corinthians 5, 15, that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves but unto him which died for them and rose again. Henceforth not live for yourself. Because a person that lives for himself is a person that is out to save his life in this world. He has no burden for the lost. 
No burden for the lost. Never going to share the gospel with anybody. Never does. Never makes it a point. Now, is the purpose of Jesus, is part of his purpose to share the gospel, to seek and to save the lost? And we're following in his path and never looking to do that? There's something not right with that. Because there was a man. He went with Paul, out to share the gospel, committed to doing that. You know what his name was? Demas. You know what Demas said? I'm not willing to pay this price anymore. My life means more than sharing about the Lord. And Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 4.10, For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. And that's what we're talking about. We can't, we have got to give up our love for this present world. That's what Jesus is saying. You love your life in this world? He's saying you're going to lose it. You've got to lose your life in this world if you want to gain it in the next. Isn't that what he said? Isn't that what we read here? So a person that loves this present world, he wakes up every day and thinks to himself, how can I make myself happy? And that's not Christianity. He's the person that is primarily focused, and here in America, they're focused on the American dream. Having the best, the newest, having it now. And everything in their life is geared towards this present world. And that is the man of Luke 12, the man whose life consists in the abundance of the things which he possesses. And you know what about that man? You know what the Lord would say? That was a man that had no concern for his soul. And Jesus says, there's nothing you have in this world that would is worth, that is the equivalent of your soul. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? There's nothing you'll ever have or gain in this life that's the equivalent of that. And he had never considered this. Look at this. This is the question of all questions right here. He, the Lord himself asked. Verse 36, for what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Now, a question is important, isn't it? Based on who's the one asking it. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the one asking this question. Probably the greatest question we could ever be asked and to think about. Isn't it? And I'm saying that man wasn't concerned about his soul. But if you want to read it, I'll read it to you right now. But in Luke 12, you know what he did? He had a conversation with his soul. And it went like this. He said, this will I do. Luke 12, I will pull down my barns and build greater. And then I will bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. He's having a conversation with his soul. Bad conversation because it goes on to say, but God said unto him, you fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which you have provided? He's a fool. So your soul's going to be required tonight and everything you have is going to do nothing to help you gain that soul. You've lost it all. All of the things you went after and your soul. We've got to be willing to follow the path of the Lord Jesus Christ if we want to have our soul. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, world and wealth are temporary. He says, 
The world can give us a lot, and it can, can it? It can give us a lot, he said, but it's only temporary. And he said, your soul goes on forever. I'm saying, I know it's a sobering message tonight, but I'm telling you, you can't think about that too much. None of us can. Because that day of judgment is going to be the most awesome, incredible day we will ever have to face. And whatever problems we have now, whatever situations you're dealing with, it won't even, you won't even care. When that day, when you're standing before him, all that's going to matter on that day is what is the condition of your soul? How is your soul? And none of us don't. We don't know if it's not going to be tomorrow. All of us. We don't know about that. You know, Greg and I were talking last night. We we're having a conversation about, I said, you know, I've never get away from this. The fact one day I'm going to have to die and stand before the Lord. And at that point, I said, nothing else will matter. Nothing else will matter. But the condition of our soul. And he was telling me he'd been thinking about his own funeral that day, yesterday, and how many would come and what it would be like. And all of us have thought about that. I've thought about that. Haven't you thought about that? Somewhere along the line, you have your funeral. Who, who's going to be there and all that? <laughs> and here's the thing. The important thing is, though, what is it? Is it how many people are going to be at your funeral? But is it the condition of your soul? Amen. Isn't that really what the important thing is? Because Luke 16 the rich man and the beggar Lazarus. Remember that story? And it says in there, the rich man died. And I guarantee you he had, he had a lot of money and a lot of friends because he had a lot of money. And I guarantee you he had a lot of mourners at his funeral. I guarantee he had a decked out funeral. And it'd be like when they have a fat cat down there at Shannon's. Cars are probably wrapped all the way around the block three times in a line to see him. And think about Lazarus. He's a beggar. I gotta lay him there. Nobody, they don't have enough to even help him out. How many people do you think came to his funeral? Very few, if any. Don't even know if he got a funeral, right? But here's the thing what about the condition of their souls? Isn't that really the important question? The eternal question? Because it says what? Lazarus, his soul, it says, was carried away by the angels into Abraham's bosom. And it said the rich man, his soul lifted up its eyes in torments. He had the world, gained the whole world, but lost his soul. So whether we deny ourselves, which is what we're talking about, Jesus says, you come after me, you need to deny yourself. Or whether we do that in this life or live for our own selfish interest, that will determine the eternal destiny of our souls. And that is something to think about. Selah. Amen. I mean, it really is. And the second condition the Lord gives here is let him deny himself. And he says, and take up his cross. And so what is taking up the cross? It's not just putting up with problems, not enduring sickness, but it is a deliberate choice that is made to do the will of God, no matter what the cost is. And so when Jesus went to the cross, he made a deliberate choice to do what he did. And who put him on the cross? Other people put him on the cross because they hated him. And here's the thing. He allowed them to do it, as we said earlier, right? He could have stopped it. So taking up the cross, I'm saying a big part of that is being unconcerned about what others think. It's dying to that because people, like they did the Lord, people are going to put you on the cross because they hated Jesus. They'll hate you. And wasn't that Peter's problem before Pentecost? He's worried about what people are going to think and do to him. It causes him to deny the Lord because he's like, I don't want that cross. I don't want the same cross that's coming his way. I don't want that. 
denied the Lord, avoided the cross. And that's what Jesus is talking about here in verse 38. Look at that. It says, Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, he says, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with his holy angels. So you've been ashamed once and you've not stood up for the Lord when you should. You've not given a testimony when you should. You've not witnessed to somebody when you should. It doesn't mean it's all over. Peter blew it and Peter was forgiven. So that's not the point, right? But our heart has got to be, hey, we are not ashamed of him and we'll speak up for him. The fear of man will keep you what people think it will keep you from picking up that cross and taking your stand for Jesus. And if you would, please just turn over to Matthew chapter 10. I just want us to look at this. Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 32, and it says, Matthew 10, 32, Jesus says, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I am not come to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, the daughter against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loves father, mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that takes not his cross and follows after me is not worthy of me. And here he says it again. He that finds his life shall lose it. And he that loses his life for my sake shall find it. And I'm saying that was my biggest battle in becoming a Christian. It wasn't that I'm going to someday be martyred, but it's what are my friends? What are my family? What is everybody I care about going to think about me? Because me and my buddies, we didn't like Jesus freaks. You could go to church, but don't be one of these people that sold out for him. And that's your own fire for the Lord types. And I'm like, I knew what was going to happen with that. And it did. It did happen, right? They didn't disappoint me. But we must be able, shouldn't we, to take up our cross daily and obey the promptings and leading of the Spirit of God. And everything He has you do will always be in line with His Word. And that's why we have to know the Word. So here's the thing. We may have to pray for somebody. He's saying, I want you to pray for this person. You get a phone call when you had other plans. Now, you can't do that now. You take up your cross. Deny yourself. And this is what you have to do. Or visit somebody when you'd like to take a nap. But our lives have got to be on the altar. Romans 12, 1 and 2. So it's got to be, we sang the song Sunday, I have decided to follow Jesus. And there is no turning back. And how's the other verse to that song go? The cross is before me and what is behind me? The world. That's what the Lord's talking about here. And though none go with me, the song says, still I will follow. And that is the positive ending I want to have on here. So though none go with you, whether it's your friends, your family, or your possessions, we can lose everything literally, right? But if our soul is saved, if our soul is right with the Lord Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter, does it? So Jesus said, he told his disciples, he says, you are all going to forsake me today. When I get crucified, you'll all leave me alone. And yet he says, and yet I am not alone, he says, because the Father is with me. He'll never leave us or forsake us. And Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die 
is the worst thing that could happen because of everybody I'm leaving behind and all these plans I had. No, he said to die is gain. And that's to where we should be, right? If you know the Lord and you're one of his and you're following him, that's going to be a total gain. You're not going to lose a thing. To live is Christ and to die is gain. And just like the song says, it is well with my soul. Verse 1. When peace like a river attendeth my ways, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, whatever it is, it is well with my soul. It is well. Amen? That's what we can say. So what does Jesus think of our souls? What does he think of them? Your soul? Anyone here? That's the only reason he came. Because he knows the eternal value of a soul, of your soul, my soul. That's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, should not be a wasted soul. That's what that word perish means, not be destroyed. What a waste. God doesn't want your life wasted. He doesn't want my life wasted in hell. To be destroyed, to perish. He so loved the world that he gave. That was the value of a soul. That's why the Lord Jesus Christ died for us. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He gave himself, his blood, his life, himself so that our souls could be redeemed. Amen? He knows the value of our souls even if we don't. Amen? So we need to ask ourselves... Who are you? Who is Jesus to us? Who do we say that he is? And we see his purpose for coming here. His purpose is not to give us our best life now, is it? Oh, no. He's going to take us on. We're going to go on the same path he went on. So that's what he's going to do. But when we do, guess what? We follow him. We're willing to follow his steps. He's saying we will have everlasting life. Amen? It'll be worth it, believe me. It will be worth it. Praise the Lord. Father, we just thank you, Lord. I just ask that you've spoken to all of our hearts tonight, Lord. And and for those that aren't Christians, Lord, that aren't saved, that don't know you, I just ask that you not let them get away from you, Lord. I ask that you will be like the hound of heaven and seek them and go after them and speak to their hearts and give them no, no peace, no rest until they find their rest in you. And for all of us, Lord, I just ask that you'll have us to think again and to ask ourselves, who do we say you are? Who are you to us? And to recommit ourselves, Lord, to the life that you set before us, a life of suffering, humiliation, and burying our cross and denying ourselves because that is the only way we'll make it in. I just ask you'll impress that on us in a big way tonight, Father, by your Holy Spirit. And I thank you for doing that in Jesus' name. Amen.